the New Zealand Tech Podcast. Brought to you by Gorilla Technology. Proactive and strategic IT. Well, greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. We are at episode 355. I'm Paul Spain. Now this week, a slight modification to our format. Uh, it is actually Wednesday now. I'm talking to you uh, following the, the uh, Apple announcements this morning. Uh, but last night, we recorded a New Zealand Tech podcast episode uh, in the usual manner on a on a Tuesday evening uh, with CB Woodhouse as the guest. Now, what I decided to do was to split this episode a little bit and uh, we will jump into that chat with uh, CB Woodhouse. We talk about uh, a range of uh, topics, some things to do with uh, Vodafone and a recent uh, data breach, some other changes and news going on to do with Vodafone, uh, stock market launch uh, for Vodafone. We talk about uh, Xiaomi's Mi Mix Two, which is a, a smartphone that, uh, in in some regards, uh, tries to take on the very latest from uh, Samsung and Apple. Uh, we talk about. Tesla extending the range of some of their electric vehicles uh, for drivers in uh, Florida wanting to escape uh, from Hurricane Irma a few days ago. We talk about uh, Process Street and we also talk about uh, a few countries in Europe that are looking to take a new approach to taxing the big international tech players, the likes of Amazon and Google. Could this be the answer to some of the challenges as these global entities start doing more and more trade outside of the US and in regions where currently they pay very little in tax. And then we talked to CB. Uh, CB, of course, is the uh, he was the original founder of Orcon, which he sold a uh, number of years ago to uh, to the government in a uh, uh, twenty million uh, dollar deal, roughly. I can't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. Uh, and we talked to him about his uh, internet provider, Voyager, and and some of the services they're doing and their latest acquisition. So that's some of the highlights for the show. But first. We are going to get straight into, and when I say we, I mean me, uh, because uh, CB is not in the studio right now. Uh, I am going to just chat through some of the uh, some of the details of Apple's announcements uh, this morning at the Steve uh, Jobs Theatre at Apple's uh, new H- HQ. Uh, in um, in Cupertino, so let's jump in. The highlights, I guess, cover really three new smartphones, a new 4K Apple TV, and the Apple Watch Series Three. So let's work through that. the The new watch, nice uh, sort of refresh. Certainly, all the t- you know typical sort of changes that are that are. Uh, Normal from one iteration to the next, small incremental uh, changes there. But the big thing that people were really interested in is the concept of the new Watch Series 3 from Apple having an embedded SIM capability that would allow you to take calls from your main number on your wrist whilst leaving your smartphone behind and also access to... 
uh, apps and the internet and and alerts uh, through the likes of uh, WhatsApp and, and so on. So all of these things working from your phone, uh, but with your smartphone left behind. Very handy if you're wanting to go out for some exercise and not have to uh, lug a phone around. Maybe you want to go on a date, but you still need to be on call in case there's any really critical uh, work matters to deal with. Um, a bunch of scenarios there where, hey, nice not to have, uh, have your phone with you well the news on that one is New Zealand is excluded from uh, at least from the initial uh, launch of the uh, watch 3 with embedded sim the watch 3 still available here uh, in New Zealand or still uh, launching here in New Zealand uh, but without that embedded sim option uh, launch price of the top of my head is uh, 529 New Zealand dollars they're still uh, keeping the uh, the series one in there and that uh, that drops in price now onto the uh, Apple TV 4k uh, this looks like a good refresh they're uh, they've done a number of improvements from a processing perspective, uh, but the big thing is that for those who have got uh, 4K or ultra um, high definition uh, TV or screen, then this is the Apple TV for you because it supports that and also uh, supports HDR or high dynamic range. So you, you know, you're really getting that that bigger, uh, fuller color gamut. Uh, so that looks good. Some interesting uh, talk in the uh, in the announcements from uh, Apple today uh, around their TV app. Now that is is really only f- um, fully enabled in I think the US and and Australia at the moment, if I remember correctly. Uh, what they're doing with that is they're bringing more content through, but not. Of so much interest because it's not uh, it's not really set up for the New Zealand market. But uh, in those markets, there will be live streaming of news and sports through that TV uh, type interface. So I'm kind of curious where that will go. Will we eventually see some variation uh, of that? Uh, maybe an embedded version in TVs uh, where TV manufacturers are maybe maybe shipping uh, the the key elements of Apple TV into into their um, into their screens in the future. I don't know, uh, but we will we will wait and see where where that goes. Uh, but yeah, good to see Apple iterating there anyway. Now onto the phones. So we have the iPhone 8 and the iPhone 8 Plus being what will uh, launch and be available for uh, pre-order this Friday in New Zealand, which is the 15th of September, and shipping on September the 22nd. So just a few days away until um, until the new iPhone 8 uh, launches here in New Zealand. Now, we're, we're looking at, uh, at these, these um, two models, I guess, being a... Uh, you know, not the massive leap forward from uh, the 7 and the 7 Plus. It's arguable maybe they shouldn't have used the iPhone 8 and um, 8 Plus as the naming because they uh, certainly from the the footage, they look quite similar uh, to the 7, uh, although they have, a, um, they have a glass back. 
Now, what is different here, the main thing that stood out to me is they have finally got to a point where wireless charging is included. So going forward from uh, the iPhone 8, it's all about wireless charging. So not just wireless uh, you know, connectivity to your earbuds or um, you know, earphones, headphones, uh, but your charging is as well. So they're in those regards catching up with the rest of the industry where we've seen uh, Qi wireless charging, which is a standard that they're jumping on board with, uh, available in devices for, for many years. I think probably looking back at least six years uh, when when uh, we started seeing Qi wireless charging coming through in, uh, in handsets. And yeah, over over recent years, we've we've really seen quite a bunch, and and Samsung have just made it the uh, the norm in their uh, phones, like the uh, the Note Seven uh, or Note Eight, and the um, uh, Galaxy S Eight and 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 S Eight uh, Plus. So yeah, so we've got the uh, the the Eight and the uh, the Eight the Eight Plus um, available imminently. What we don't have for a little while is the new one, which or the very, very new one, the new new phone, uh, which is the iPhone X. That which had been had been rumoured is really the the very uh, the very very slick looking new iPhone that one up Samsung in terms of edge to edge and and top to bottom uh, display. Uh, certainly, looking at um, looking at the the videos and the material online, I haven't uh, touched one uh, just yet, uh, but it does look very very nice. And this is the phone that does away with the home button and touch ID from Apple. Those are gone. Uh, it's not a button on the rear of the device. Uh, you slide up from the bottom if you want to get to the home screen. And unlocking is with Face ID. Now, this to me is very curious because if we look at things like Microsoft's uh, Surface devices, we look at uh, uh, Lumia and HPX3 uh, smartphones, and of course, uh, Samsung's uh, Note 8 and uh, Galaxy S8 and S8 Plus, all of those have had some sort of uh, retina, facial scan, some sort of capability, whether it's 2D or 3D way of recognizing whether you're uh, the correct user for a device and uh, unlock- unlocking the device accordingly. Uh, but in, I think, most people's experience, that's been far from uh, perfect. And what I've noticed is it's it's actually not really worth bothering with that technology. Uh, on the uh, Samsung, it was more a security thing because the security wasn't that uh, wasn't that great. Uh, in terms of on things like the uh, the Surface product, the the capability was you know, it was pretty secure, not really too much of an issue there. But it would maybe only work ninety percent of the time. So what we're seeing here from Apple is it appears as though they've really nailed this. Certainly they would be nuts to release a phone where this is your unlock mechanism. Of course you can unlock with a with a pin code uh as well and you can do emergency dialing, but your your normal uh 
access method is just by looking at your phone and it will uh, it will unlock using a, a 3D uh, type mechanism and th- there's a bit more detail that, that Apple went into in, in the launch with these pixels that map out your face and, and so on and basically doing a, a 3D scan uh, of your face to, uh, to decide whether you are the legitimate uh, user of, uh, of your phone. So yeah, that looks uh, looks actually pretty pretty interesting to me. We will see that uh, become available for pre-orders in the last week of October. So not that far off, uh, and uh, and availability here in New Zealand. We're in the first wave, uh, as we are with the uh, the iPhone eight and eight plus, and that will be uh, yeah landing and, and available for. Uh, uh, for November three, so just running through a few prices. Those that are uh, interested, iPhone eight. Uh, the the base configuration has uh, been bumped up from 32 gig model to a 64 gig model, uh, launching in New Zealand at $1,249. The iPhone 8 Plus launching at $1,449 uh, for that 64 gig model. Uh, when we move to the iPhone X, that's when there's a real uh, bump in price. Not quite um, 50%, but not far off. Talking about a New Zealand launch price of seven. 1,999. In the US, it's 999, um, but that excludes tax, so we're not dramatically more expensive than the US price. And if you want the 256 gig model, $2,099. That would have to be one of the most expensive uh, phones that I can uh, recall ever. Uh, might not be quite the most expensive, but it's uh, it's it's not uh, not f- too far off. Other than other than very uh, specialised uh, handsets like the uh, the Virtu phones with uh, encrusted with diamonds and and the like. Um, so that's a quick update on uh, on what's coming through from Apple. And now let's jump into uh, the rest of the episode that was recorded last night uh, with CB Woodhouse. In Florida, Hurricane Irma has been wreaking major havoc and uh, Tesla have managed to get themselves a little bit of uh, attention at this time. They had one of their customers call up and ask for some additional range on their vehicle. Which you think, well, how could Tesla help with the battery life on your vehicle. Well, some of their uh, lower-end models, they've got the 60 and the 70 uh, kilowatt hour uh, versions of the Model S and the Model um, X, and the the lower-range vehicles, although they're sold as having, um, say, a 60 kilowatt hour battery, actually they've got the 75 kilowatt hour Battery, so it's just a it's just a software uh, limitation. So what uh, Tesla did was they apparently pushed out an update that for um, for a period, I think uh, you know, a couple of weeks, that uh, these vehicles would uh, would have the extra range, which is brilliant with people trying to uh, escape from the hurricanes and so on. And I think yeah, maybe an extra fifty kilometres or or so 
of uh, of range for uh, for those it's that are pretty in this dis- pretty crazy for people to discover that they bought a, a Tesla 60D and it turns out that it's actually a 75D that's been software limited. But I suppose um, you know there's probably some manufacturing process which says it's just easier to actually put higher capacity batteries in into every car and make them standard and then just software bugger them than to have a whole different you know engineering process. But I was pretty surprised by that. But um, Tesla seems to be masters of this you know kind of um get good pr for crazy things and you know they came out with their like bioweapon defense filter and you can just you know elon <laughs> musk has these great ideas which is you know most car companies would say oh it's a, it's a air filter you know an anti-allergy pollen filter at the most but you know yeah. elon's like no we'll call it a bioweapon defense and you know and, and it, it works you know it makes you really go wow that's it's amazing but um yeah it's kind of another one of these things yeah that's Next, we'll find out they're all P100Ds and they've got ludicrous mode and everything. <laughs> you can hack in and uh, and tweak them. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I just I just thought it was you know it was cool that um, you know a they were you know a, a call to a customer call center was able to actually lead to such an action. It was able to be done very quickly. And because of the the software or the internet connectivity that's built into the vehicles, they could just push this out to vehicles in that in that region, and it just shows how different they are to a traditional car company. I mean, can you uh, imagine calling up a traditional car company and the person in their customer service department managing to get someone at the appropriate level to actually sign that off? And then to work out how to push such an update out to their vehicles, I'm imagining there was somebody there at Tesla who probably worked really late to kind of, you know, make some changes and, you know, yeah, do quite. some fun stuff with their database that picked a particular location of vehicles and and then pushed it out. But um, you know, it's possible when you really care about your your customers and when you've when you've got full control of your domain and you're not just dealing with a whole lot of other people's software and that you know they've got quite a bit of control over the the technology in their vehicles right yeah it's also interesting it's it's sort of it's sort of uh foreshadowing how much of the world is becoming actual just lines code and software and that kind of thing because you know physical objects like cars used to be absolutely immutable you know you bought them with a a red you know paint job and an x y and a z and and now it's kind of your all the functionality of the things that you buy can sort of be you know retroactively changed or um, you know, it's going to it's going to mean interesting interesting things. So uh, instead of buying physical objects, you know, it's probably going to go to the the way of you know you buy like a container for your software, and then you know your software is continually um, you know sold to you or licensed or you know it's interesting. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's um, it's an exciting time as we just you know we're in this period where there is just continued innovation and uh, you know especially when we're paying for things on a on a subscription basis which uh, you know is is you know quite possibly how we will uh, I don't know if you say consume vehicles but you know how we'll pay for vehicles in the past could be on a subscription basis or you know per use basis like we see with with Uber uh, today and um, yeah I think yeah certainly the the need to own uh, vehicles will um, will change. Did you or, or um, did you hear about the the um, you know, the Jeep? Uh, you know, kind of recall of I think it was 1.5 million vehicles for um, basically having access to 
you know, systems that they should and things. So um, I, I don't know all the details, but I read it very quickly. But, yeah, Jeep had, I think, 1.5 million vehicles that they recalled because they had a SIM card in the system so that, you know, they could do um, off-the-air updates and things. Yes. And it was supposed to be essentially not very much or no control of the car and maybe some access to the infotainment system. But the, the new Jeeps are effectively drive-by-wire, and so... You know, even things like the steering doesn't have direct rack and pinion control. It's it's driving motors that are driving hydraulic systems and things. And so it turned out that you know, with relatively um, little effort, you could hack into a, a Jeep over the internet with a valid IP address, and then do things like you know, if, even if the driver's turning left, you could turn the wheels right and send them over a cliff, lock up the brakes, all kinds of things. So it was just beefing up security, but. <coughs> I think we're gonna we're yeah, gonna, live, we're gonna live in a world very soon where all of our cars are potentially remote controllable by people and could be used as cyber weapons and yeah. I mean you could be you could be in your car um, you know and it's autonomously driving but then you know someone takes control of it mows down a whole lot of pedestrians and then changes the logs to say that actually no it wasn't autonomous you were driving it at the time and we're going to see some crazy things going forward you know you, you might not want to suggest that in case we've got <laughs> any hackers that are listening in CB that yeah, well uh, um, you know want to want to try that on you well yes well <laughs> lucky I drive it lucky I drive an old car that doesn't drive by wire at the moment very very uh, very smart um, but you know eventually I think that will be the way we'll be sitting in these types of vehicles um, but yeah, there there are some pretty genuine risks there, and yeah, you know, automakers are going to need to be at least as sharp as as anybody else from a cybersecurity perspective. But yeah, you know, it does leave you wondering, you know, what's going on when uh, Jeep could, um, you know, when when yeah, the, the the vehicles could be in this sort of position where they can get uh, they can get hacked so easily in this day and age because we've certainly seen those uh, demonstrations in the past um, but you would sort of expect that uh, these things would get uh, would get a whole lot better but yeah, I recently I recently went to Israel with the New Zealand cyber security delegation so there were sort of three ministers and 30 entrepreneurs that went from New Zealand to Israel and Israel's so far ahead in this kind of thing because you know they've got a defense mentality and they've got mandatory army service so everyone wants to service in their cyber security unit so they've got 20,000 you know 18 to 21 year old uh, you know military people that are in their cyber security unit and you know we've just got nothing like that and we talked to the youngest member I think was 17 and the two projects that he was working on and had successfully done is he'd hacked into a Samsung fridge and written some custom ransomware as like a project that basically um, said to the fridge, oh, your fridge is going to increase one degree in temperature and your food will spoil in this amount of time unless you pay this many Bitcoin. So yeah. it's kind of an experimental hack, um, yeah. not released yeah. to the wild, but proven in, in principle. And the other thing that he did, it he'd written like a um, yeah, ransomware thing to basically brick uh, you know, like a Honda Accords infotainment system, so that effectively the car, you know, you'd put in your key and it would, you know, come up and say your car is now bricked and won't drive anywhere and won't do anything until you know you pay a you pay a fee. So, um, seeing some of the stuff another that reason not to Israel, want to own a car. Well, seeing some of the stuff that they work on in Israel just was mind-boggling in terms of just you know how many um, potential issues and things there are with all of these interconnected devices. So, 
yeah, it's going to be an interesting world in the next ten years. So, what's your what's your take? Do you uh, do you do you think <laughs> we should stay well clear of them? And uh... no, I mean, whenever there's any threat, there's a, there's always an opportunity. So, um, yeah. you know, running a running an internet service provider and and um, you know being in the thick of all of these kind of things, we uh, will want to develop services to help our customers. Um, cope with some of these kinds of kinds of things so um, you know maybe not immediately but in the next six months to a year we'll probably be bringing out some sort of security type products mm, mm. we're focused on our voice products at the moment but um, you know the number of ransomware attacks in the world has tripled since January at least so um, those kind of things are going to become important mm. now on to um, on to one of your uh, your competitors here in the New Zealand market um, because for those that, that uh, don't know, you um, own uh, Voyager Internet here. Um, but Vodafone New Zealand have had uh, some interesting press over the last few days. Last week on the New Zealand Tech Podcast, we talked about uh, something that I'd just seen discussed on uh, the forums on uh, Geek Zone, which was to do with Vodafone shutting down their email um, servers. And I guess I didn't take it as too much of a of a big deal because for a long time I've advocated and I've said this on on national news that people should exit from having ISP email and they should actually work with a dedicated email you know provider who's focused on the security of that email and anti spam and and allows you to move from provider to provider at at, at will. Um, but I got a call a couple of days later and it sort of hit national. Uh, news and yeah, it did seem like uh, this was something uh, that was worrying a, a lot of uh, a lot of people. Concern for uh, yeah, particularly those that maybe had adopted ISP email early on um, and maybe not super uh, super tech savvy. So uh, yeah, for those who've got family members that are using a, a Vodafone email address and then a bunch of all the other ones. Um, uh, Paradise Net and so on, and you know my um, uh, my father's in this uh, boat uh, where he's going to have to uh, have to move off. Then um, yeah, those people are going to need a little bit of help to move on to a onto a Gmail dot com or Outlook dot com type uh, uh, email address. Uh, I'd probably say shy away from Yahoo after the uh, yeah. Uh, I, mean, the I, think, I think it's interesting. I think it's interesting. Um, or go largest. for a domain name, uh, you know, uh, based uh, email for your family. Yeah, I think it's interesting that the second largest telco in New Zealand just decides to turn off email for, I think it's 187,000 customers, they said. But I, I think the... Um, well, Spark I, exited the game a long time ago, right? They, yeah, they, I mean, they've they, outsourced it for a, for a very long time. So for, for another big player uh, to get to a similar position, they've just decided, well, not not to pay for it. And um, I'm, I'm actually pretty comfortable with that approach. The only reason I would think... Well, you tell me, what's your view? Do you provide this for your customers? Do you provide? Uh, yeah, we do um, through uh, you know a number of different brands. But I suppose yeah. um, you know there's two things in terms of the implementation. I thought that Vodafone's timeline was very very short. You know, yes. if I was looking to do the same thing as Vodafone, I'd be talking about a year time frame, not saying oh in a couple of months your email will be turned off, go to Gmail. Um, you know, people. It's a lot of people won't even know about the change, or you know they won't be up to speed. Um, and the process has to be managed. I think probably their time frame is a bit short. The other thing, of course, is that um, you know if you're well, they've had some once, issues, haven't they? Which is, I guess, part yeah, of why once, they're doing once this. Once all Kiwis are on, you know, Gmail, it's a it's an American run 
uh, system and you know we you guaranteed to have all our information hoovered up so at, at the moment it's you know it's possible that the NSA might not be hoovering up you know some clean edit addresses or, or whatever and um, you know if New Zealand wanted to take a different path from the whole five eyes thing and we had you know our own New Zealand data sovereignty then you know we might be able to make those choices but of course if New Zealand decides to leave five eyes or we you know um, you know, once once all of our citizens are on Gmail, it's kind of irrelevant. Um, uh, I'm not. So. I'm not so sure. I mean, I think the 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 big players in the US, the Googles, Apples, Microsofts, have been uh, you know pushing the government very very hard. You know, in in the US when they've wanted to get access to data, and they've uh, you know they've also worked pretty hard where the government's been trying to get access to data that uh, is on servers outside of the US. So, I mean, it is quite interesting to to read how how you know hard they play, hardball they've been playing with. Mm, um, I, I think with that's all. Government. I think that's all smoke and mirrors. I mean, there was that thing about the, you know, the um, the government saying, "Oh, I, Apple needs to hand over access to this iPhone," and I think that was just all a big PR stunt because you know then it made Apple look like, "Oh, you know, not the government doesn't have access to everyone's devices," but of course they do. You know, we know that the NSA can turn on the microphone of any phone virtually worldwide. They have access to just about every message, every call, everything anyone's ever sent. Um, so you know, if you if you're kind of not in that game, I think you're naive to be honest. And and they've been hoovering up information, you know, back for ten years. So yeah, I mean, they have collected a lot of information. I'm not sure if it's quite as widespread as that, but I mean, these things were always going to be open to some. Well, I think I think that, I mean the, the, the NSA's mission was you know total total collection, and so um, you know their goal was to collect a hundred percent of everything seen across the internet and tag it down to someone. And I think yeah, but legally you know, they're they're. They're not entitled to do so, and no, I don't think that matters. <laughs> and, the, and there's a storage cost as as well. So um, you know, I'm not sure that they can they can keep everything. Yeah, well, there was I a there was a, I saw there was an analysis of um, global hard drive manufacturing quantities, and then you know where the um, you know there's basically this massive hole. Yeah, where okay. there's all these hard drives being made, but we don't know where they're going. Where they're so going, they're obviously okay. going to NSA coffers and things. And then someone worked out the storage capacity, and it was well within the limits to basically record all voice calls, all data, all email, all everything for. Well, the trick for them would everyone. be just to share around on everyone's computers, you see, so they don't actually have to buy anything themselves. Yeah. As long as you own everyone's computers, you just put aside a uh, percentage of everyone's storage and uh, yeah. store your stuff there and then grab it when you need it. But certainly, I mean, there's creepy things going on, and I've had multiple friends that, uh, and I've actually had myself where I was talking about something. So this happened to me in LA recently. I was I was talking with a friend about a product and something, and then all of a sudden in my Facebook feed, that product started popping up over and over and over again. So um, you know, I I believe that basically our phones are being used as listening devices and having ads and things pass through them. So there's a lot going on that. Uh, you know, it's a bit shifty. <laughs> hmm. uh, what strange product should we mention now and see whether it comes up in our, <laughs> in our advertising feeds? Well, my phone's on flight mode, so it's not going to work. But <laughs> um, oh no, but they can listen surely while you're in flight mode too. If that's true. If that's they probably smart, do, yeah. Turn it on and off. At will. Um, so there, there was that for Vodafone. There was also, and th- this one actually came uh, via. Uh, Geek Zone as well is that Vodafone had a bit of a security flaw 
at whereby um, I think the original uh, post, which was I think it was a couple of couple of nights ago, was uh, someone you know posting. They went to a particular Vodafone page and they saw in the URL their phone number was in the URL to get um, you know to get varying information. They went into my uh, my Vodafone for their prepay, and then they went into profile and their details. And um, Geeks, I removed this URL, uh, but the person tried changing the URL, but where it had their phone number for another number, and it came up with another customer's information. Right, yeah, it's kind um, of a rookie mistake. Yeah, which was, I was, uh, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a shock. But Vodafone did work very, very swiftly to sort that out, and had somebody, um, you know, get in and fix their code up. Um, within, I think it was in about five hours of um, um, of that. So, you know, someone, well, there was someone that, was working There was just that massive data it. breach in the US of Equifax. So half of all US citizens' social security numbers, birthdays, everything, medical records have, have now been stolen. So yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's going to get into the stage where the chances of your data not being out there and available is very, very small if you're on some site, you know. Mm. Oh, I, I, yeah, I think so now. I mean, there's such a high percentage of email addresses and data that have been leaked and hacked in some form. And, you know, it's now got to the point, if you're wondering what somebody's email address is and you're not sure and you're trying to guess, is it, you know, is it Paul.Spain or is it Paul Spain or is it P Spain? You know, you can actually go on to... Um, uh, you know some of these sites and start keying in a few email addresses, and uh, you know it'll come up with the email addresses that have been hacked, and you know right. if that one's um, come up, then it's probably got a higher chance of actually being a legit uh, email address. So de- depending on uh, you know where the breach was and so on. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, a an odd position to be in. Um, now also on the Vodafone uh, f- front. We have heard um, via varying media reports uh, that Vodafone uh, New Zealand is not on the block entirely, but um, uh, certainly looks like um, there will be an IPO or a, a share market listing for a, you know, a reasonable chunk of, uh, of the company. Uh, coming up on uh, New Zealand and Australian um, uh, stock markets, which is uh, kind of interesting, NZX and, uh, and and ASX. So I don't think we've seen any official announcement on it just yet, uh, but it's, it seems as though this is um, pretty much a, uh, a foregone conclusion and uh, the NBR's uh, re- reports on it are sort of, Suggesting that investors are going to be uh, going to be you know flocking to uh, uh, to snap up these shares. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a very exciting proposition, but uh, you'd have to you have, you know, I guess we'd have to find out more about why they're why they're doing it. I mean, if Vodafone said well, we've got this exciting new product uh, and we want to raise a whole heap of money and take it to market, then of course um, you know it might be an interesting thing. But if it's just we're doing the same thing that we've always done and these are our margins, then where's it going to go? Yeah, they're wanting to hedge their bets on the New Zealand market. Are they wanting to, uh, you know, benefit on the their past successes that they think may not be so good going forward? Or are they sell the, share, the existing shareholders selling down a bunch of their asset because they don't think it's going anywhere anymore? There's there's, there's all sorts of possible scenarios mm. in there. Um, you know, I, and I haven't had a look at Vodafone Group sort of across the board, but you know, a, a pretty big um, you know company globally. 
uh, and it is it is a you know pretty curious approach that they would be um, you know selling down in the in this way. But yeah, talking about a, a partial uh, listing, the idea of uh, raising over a, over a billion dollars. So we'll wait and uh, and see what the real facts are on that. But who's the who's the shareholder if it's not um, publicly listed at the moment? Is the shareholder just Vodafone Group globally? I haven't researched that kind of thing, but it may be maybe yeah. Vodafone so I think Group it's one hundred percent owned by um, by Vodafone um, Group. PLC um, in in I think listed um, listed in London. So and their what are their uh, details? They've got a globally they have a market cap of uh, sixty billion um, British pounds. So you know that that puts them um, uh, puts them you know well over the hundred billion dollar. Um, um, they might just have might have nothing to do with the New Zealand market. They might just, you know, want to take some money off the table and stock up their war chest. So yeah, mm. yeah, um, it's yeah, it's kind of, kind of an interesting one. So yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know what the situation is with their um, um, profits and so on. I'm not not sure if they're uh, you know if they're profitable and whatnot at the moment. So. Yeah, there'll, there'll be something that would be interesting to uh, to look into if this uh, if this is really happening and to understand exactly why they're uh, why they're taking this uh, this approach. Um, now, one manufacturer that's uh, been working to, I guess, gain a bit of a you know a bit of attention, and there are, you know a bunch of uh, these smartphone and and tech manufacturers, uh, particularly in uh, in the Chinese. Uh, market that have been coming out with some, um, yeah, some reasonably slick devices, but often at lower price points. And one of those is uh, Xiaomi, and um, there has been uh, an announcement on, uh, yesterday around their new handset, uh, Xiaomi Mix 2, uh, or Mi Mix 2, um, which is a new um I guess a, a full screen style um, smartphone, sort of in a in a um, slightly different vein from what we've what we've seen from uh, Samsung, but you know not 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 too far off where we expect um, Apple to to land with the new uh, the new iPhone. Um, in that year, you've got a screen that is um, is filling up most of the front of the phone, so. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, cell phone design is getting pretty boring these days, isn't it? I mean, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, when you had all the variants of different styles of Nokia's and you could get different colours and they had different buttons and you could get a snake specialist one or a slide-out keyboard, that kind of thing. I mean, we're really heading, all manufacturers seem to be heading towards a, a fist-sized plate of glass with no buttons that is, you know, has battery life as long as possible. But yeah. the, the differentiation is pretty small. You know, that most phones seem to look pretty similar these days. So. Well, I think, you know, it was uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago. Um, maybe it was, yeah, it was 10 years ago, roughly, uh, when we saw some of these sort of futuristic sort of videos coming through from uh, from Microsoft where, yeah, you just have this thin piece of... Um, um, Translucent glass almost. Yeah, it would look, look like that. And that, that would be your, 
you know, be it for your phone and it would just be all screen. And We're basically there. No, no, right no, ele- no electronics at all. So there's still a bit of electronics in there, which I'm not quite sure how you would you would have that thing work entirely unless you're broadcasting some uh, some pretty impressive power and smarts and you can make everything uh, um, invisible. But, yeah, I think our devices are pretty, pretty good these days and uh, um, we'll keep seeing sort of these incremental changes and sometimes we'll get maybe some bigger leaps on batteries and, and cameras and things from time to time um, but well, yeah, there's, yeah. That, there's that technology the lithium air battery which seems to have promise which they're saying that if the, if the lithium air technology comes along then you'll be able to have a cell phone that charges in 30 seconds and lasts for a month and then if you had that sort of power capability and you had a, a slab of glass that was edge to edge screen and maybe a screen on both sides then obviously you could do something where you, you project through the phone with each side camera so you basically you know, when you're not using the phone, you basically just have the camera looking, you know, projecting what's behind it, and then it could be be made to look invisible, even though it's not. So you have a forward and a back camera and two screens on either side, and yeah, maybe we'll we'll virtually get there in the next couple of years. But yeah, yeah, well, I, th- I, th- I think we've got yeah, plenty of plenty of incremental advancements ahead, and uh, yeah, yeah, bigger ones like you know, big leaps in in uh, in battery. Yeah, I think a lot of the research has been done on those things, but it usually takes you know, uh, many years for those to uh, you know, evolve. It can sort of take a decade to when they figure something out at that first sort of demonstration level uh, to when we see the product. So, yeah, hopefully we'll, we'll certainly see more advancements there down, the, um, down that battery track. But I guess in another five or ten years, we're either going to be all carrying around identical pieces of slab glass or we're going to have retina implants, one or the other. <laughs> wired straight into our brain then we don't even need to touch the retina yeah um yeah so that i mean i won't go into all the details of the um xiaomi mi mix 2 but uh yeah looks uh looks pretty cool and um launching in china uh starting at about um probably yeah, 700 or so uh new zealand dollars and yeah pretty high-end specs that are um you know up there with with uh, galaxies um the Samsung's Galaxy S8 and, and, and S8 um, Plus, a couple of uh, variations there. Um, so yeah, it's. I mean, it's. Good, I think it's good to see not just the the the, the Samsungs and Apples sort of innovating um, or you know at, at competing at that end because we've looked at a whole bunch of other phones through the year, and um, yeah, none of them have really stood out as much as what Samsung are doing and what we expect Apple to be doing uh, tomorrow, although there's some rumours around what's next from uh, Huawei as well and in, in, in terms of edge-to-edge type uh, screen on uh, on a phone there as well. Um, all right, now a couple of other um, topics. This one um, piqued my interest, was a, a story that... Uh, Reuters have published around a number of countries in Europe who uh, are seeking to tax uh, revenues from um, from some of the the, the big um, you know multinational uh, tech firms like Amazon and and Google and so on. And this is interesting because I've been, I guess, scratching my head for some time trying to get my to get an understanding of what the future looks like from a tax perspective when we are reliant on and and this isn't a foregone conclusion but certainly we're going to become more reliant in countries like New Zealand lots of other countries on 
on big players, and we already are today, you know, heavily reliant on, say, Facebook. There's so much communication that's done over Facebook. There's so much video that we consume that comes from uh, Google and Netflix and Amazon, and we'll see more and more products being shipped out from Amazon uh, rather than bought through lots of other other channels. And certainly, de- you know, depending on how successful. Um, uh, things go with with some of the the innovative um, work that's going on locally um, in the supermarket space. And Chris Quinn, ex ex Spark, uh, seems to be doing a pretty interesting job in terms of testing out some um, some some new models with um, with supermarkets here um, in New Zealand, and also partnership that they've just established um, with our neighbour One Street Up, um, which is. Uh, eat my lunch. Uh, so they've got a partnership going on there. They've they've launched a couple of sort of s- smaller uh, variations on the supermarket. Some interesting stuff going on there. But I don't think that's going to completely you know stop Amazon doing whatever they decide uh, to do. So we're going to end up with these players like Amazon, um, who will, I'm sure, reduce down uh, the footprint of uh, of some of our retail here in New Zealand and. Um, Certainly in the, the foreseeable future, a lot of that will be shipped in from overseas, very little taxes uh, being paid locally unless some, some smart new models come into play. So that's what sort of piqued my interest when I, when I saw this headline as well, what, what could this lead to? And, the, yeah, the suggestions are around um, taxing being based on Revenue rather than or, or turnover rather than just uh, uh, profit as they as they are now and of course there's all sorts of games that get that get played uh, to to you know move things around so that tax gets paid in certain jurisdictions where the tax rates are a lot lower. Yeah, I think the I think the big players have um, you know been taking the piss a little bit <laughs> you know with um, you know when you look at Google they're sort of headquartered in Ireland and there's the this and that, and um, yeah, I mean, it, essentially, this all started back in the day when you had, you know, the internet sort of started with the AOLs and the the big telcos and that kind of thing, and the, the telcos were kind of making money and they had access to the networks, and then pretty soon, um, you know, telcos kind of had this position where we were having to um, massively invest in infrastructure and increase speeds and lay fibre and do all this thing to make the internet, <coughs> excuse me, work. But you know, companies like Google and Facebook with you know less infrastructure and a single location that started out kind of basically as a website ended up starting to make all the money. Now, of course, you know Facebook, Apple, Google actually have massive you know data centers and infrastructure and that kind of thing now. Um, but you know they were taking a disproportionate amount of profits, and you know this is where some of the ar- ar- arguments around things like internet neutrality and all these kind of things have, have come across. But um, yeah, I think the big four they hold it. They wield a disproportionate amount of power, and because they've got so much power in terms of uh, you know legal counsel and that kind of thing, and, and also lobbying. You know, the the internet companies now have big lobbies in the US. It's not you know they're not just kind of sitting by the sideline anymore. So these these companies are you know paying big money to politicians to try and have things pushed through. And um, yeah, I think it's pretty obvious that the the internet giants are doing what they can to avoid paying tax and it's not fair on the rest of us you know if they're making all the money they should be paying some tax yeah and and not just in in their home countries where where they're headquartered because uh yeah most of them are, are spread across a small number of locations and uh 
you know we don't want all the tax dollars in the world going to um, going to the the US. Uh, well, I, you know, I don't know whether it's, gonna, it's, it's I don't know whether it's still the case. Yeah. It wasn't Apple sitting on kind of more physical cash that they and the reason they were sitting on it was because they couldn't pull it back without attracting tax. So yeah, you know, I don't know how like physical it, it was, but well, I know what you mean. They're sitting you know, on, they're, they're on sitting, money sitting in different on, you know, different billion, parts of the world, multi-billion yeah. dollar cash piles, and there was yes. there was crazy numbers like you know it was yeah. half the US GDP and <laughs> you know things like that. Um, yeah, yeah, some some huge amounts of uh, of money there. Um, now, I should just uh, mention, uh, for those that listened in last week, they would have heard a little bit about our new sponsor on the show, uh, which is Process Street. And um, Process Street really is an incredible tool. It's great to have them on board uh, supporting the podcast. They, The reason that, um, that, that we chose to... Uh, to work with Process Street is because we've been using their uh, software, uh, my firm at Gorilla, for the last year, and what we found is it's uh, it's just you know a, a pretty unique tool. Um, there are other products and other ways out there um, of capturing your business processes, but uh, yeah, we've just found it incredibly easy to use to capture all those checklists and process and things things that you need to do, um, and you can also automate and tie in with all sorts of other um, products through um, integrations with, with Zapier and so on, so if you've got a, you know, it might be, I don't know what things you have in your business um, CV, but I'm sure there are lots of repeatable things that you need to do, from staff onboarding to uh, you know, maybe how people deal with sort of certain types of uh, technical challenges where you need to make sure there's some uh, consistency. Um, but those are all the sorts of things that, that we use Process Street for. The staff onboarding side is great because we we can you know record uh, videos and, and have a lot of content in there, um, as well as there being checklists and, and, and things that get done. So um, yeah, we we don't actually use Process Street, but um, we've got way too many systems, like a lot of companies these days. So yeah. we use we use Zero and you know. I don't know, 30 or 40 other systems right. to do all kinds of things, back office type functions. Yep. So, um, no, it might be yeah, just, just, just the tool to, uh, to, to look at. Uh, but for any listeners that are interested in, in looking, seeing if that can help you out, whether it's you know just technical processes, which is quite common, um, and that's certainly you know we'll be quite heavy in terms of our usage of it, uh, Gorilla, or, or whether it's just other business processes, uh, even you know the, the simple things like uh, um, dealing with staff leave requests and 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 the like, how you manage those, um, then have a look at nztechpodcast.com slash process street s t r e um, for for details and access to um, to our affiliate link, which would give you um, access to the uh, the free for life version as well as ten percent discount if you want to keep using that. Now, I think that's um, that's probably all the critical agenda items we had to talk about, other than getting an update from you on what's happening in the in the Voyager world. Now, I saw an email through, or a couple of emails through last week, uh, about a little acquisition you've done um, with a company that Gorilla's been dealing with for uh, for some some time. So, tell us a little bit about uh, about that one to start with. Yeah. So. Um uh, Voyage has been largely business and wholesale focused for the last few years as we've been building up scale and we've done two recent acquisitions so one was Actrix which was New Zealand's first internet provider and the fifth company that ever sold commercial internet 
uh, I think in the world. They started way back in 1989. So Actrix kind of gave us 1% of the New Zealand uh, broadband market. So that was a nice buffer to our, you know, residential. So Voyage is somewhere sort of between 1% and 2% market share in New Zealand telecommunications now. And um, with Conversant, what we found is that, uh, you know, Conversant wasn't a telco. So Voyage is a telco. We have number ranges and interconnect and, um, you know, level 5 switch and that kind of thing. But Conversant had a really great uh, usable uh, voice product for SMEs. So sort of the um, basically a phone system for um, businesses that have between 5 and 20 staff and um, they're doing some really innovative things and they were probably a couple of years ahead of what we had in our own product and they had a small customer base whereas Voyager's got 25,000 uh, business customers that buy service and we've got 40,000 uh, customers that we bill on a regular basis in total so the opportunity with Conversant was to take a great voice product and roll that out to our uh, wider customer base and also throw some more resource at them and merge our voice development teams. Um, but this, the, the, the essential uh, conversant product is that, um, you know, it's essentially a cloud PBX product. So instead of having to buy physical hardware, you know, a lot of people have seen those old Panasonic PBXs sitting in a corner gathering dust somewhere. Um, and of course, with PSTN lines and traditional PBXs, you can't access your phones from, you know, remote locations or overseas. So the conversant product is, is next generation, allows you know staff to work remotely, um, and basically have the company's phone system in the cloud that you pay a, a monthly fee for, rather than any kind of capex. So, you know, for a small monthly fee, um, you get a phone, fully featured phone system. It's all maintained by us and doesn't break down and is available 100% from anywhere. Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's fair to say our experiences with uh, with you know conversant you know prior to you buying them and you know I'm I'm imagining you'll only uh, you'll only put more into them. Um, yeah, have been very good in terms of reliability and uh, you know, capabilities and so on. So um, yeah, I think that uh, seems like a, a pretty uh, pretty positive positive move and you bringing over the whole uh, the whole conversant team as yep. part of that acquisition yeah anytime i do acquisitions i generally try and retain all the staff so uh the voyager team's got auckland wellington and christchurch offices now um and we're nearly at 100 staff and um yeah i'm very happy that voyager after five years is now bigger than Orcon was when i sold it back in 1997 so wow, kind of so passed that milestone so what was the t- what was the sort of turnover when you sold Orcon and where where are you at now with Voyager? So when I when I sold Orcon, it was turning over about twenty four million, and Voyager is close to thirty million now. And uh, Voyager was the Voyager was the fastest growing company in New Zealand in two thousand fourteen. So we did fourteen hundred percent revenue growth over one period. So that was by, that. by acquisition to a to a degree. There were there were some acquisitions in there, um, yep. but yeah, we won the Deloitte Fast Fifty, and and um, acquisitions are allowed. It's just a, the total revenue number. So we went from half a million turnover to fourteen or twelve million turnover, I think, in one right. one measurement period, yeah. basically. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's that's moving pretty fast. I, I imagine that's um, that's smooth smoothed out a bit. Otherwise, you'd have over a hundred percent of the market by now if you kept up at that rate. Yeah, a year ago we were doing twenty million. <laughs> So we've now we've jumped another fifty percent last year, um, but uh, yeah, very happy with the the team and everyone's working together great, and it's very exciting to be part of something again. And um, yeah, we cover a lot of services. I'd, I'm not sure there's a telecommunications company in New Zealand that would have such a broad range of services because. Um, 
you know, New Zealand's kind of split between the web hosting and domain companies and cloud companies on one side, and then you've got the telcos and fixed line broadband mobile kind of the other. But if Wordjet is everything from domain names to email to um, you know website hosting to security services to you know broadband fiber to wholesale to telco services to cloud PBX. Um, with the conversant acquisition, so we've got a big, big product set. Um, but what we like to do is, um, yeah, we've got a smaller number of customers than the big guys, and then you know, kind of provide everything that those customers need. But mm. it's certainly been a fun, wild ride. Yeah, and so what does it look like for you now? You spend quite a bit of your time overseas. Now, when I look at some of the um, the bigger players in the market. Um, you know they've got so much to be looking at and worrying about and so on that they have to um, yeah have to let, spend a lot of time overseeing uh, those things and you know like everyone else they're trying to work out where to where to next how do you keep up with what's going on and uh, you know ensure that you're you're sort of wearing a futurist hat a lot of the time so that uh, you can be making really uh, you know critical long-term decisions for uh, for the future of your business yeah i think i think with Orcon, i i was basically in there um every single day for kind of 10 years till the day that i sold it It was very hands-on um but i didn't have my you know sort of uh future vision goggles on or whatever and um yeah with voyager i've got a fantastic team and so from last year i was very lucky that i was able to take quite a lot of time off to travel i've actually got a house in la now so i spend 50 percent of my time overseas um, but I've been going to a futurism, um, you know, con- uh, so conferences. I went to the um, the Israeli security conference um, last month that I talked about, um, and I'm a member of uh, Singularity University and also Peter Diamandis's, um, you know, kind of group of executives that looks at you know type future scenarios. So, but the thing is, is that um, you know technology is changing so fast and it's changing at a, sort of an ad- advancing pace that you I kind of feel like it's a full-time job reading articles and researching and trying to figure out what's going on. So at the moment, I've got kind of my own internal research streams on things like cryptocurrencies, uh, machine learning, um, big data, um, cybersecurity, all kinds of things. And I've got little research portfolios on all of these things, so I'm kind of trying to figure out where things are going, where maybe Voyage can add value, uh, where the world's going to head up. But, yeah, it's a, it's a full-time job. There's... There's a lot of stuff happening. Yes, no, there certainly uh, there certainly is, and um, yeah, I think it's good that you're you're putting yourself in a position to be able to um, you know keep up with those things as you know as as best you can because the you know the pace is pretty uh, pretty rapid, and yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to uh, to watch what areas that uh, that you get into next. Have you got any more? Acquisitions, sort of on the on the um, horizon. Yeah, I've, I've got the ability to fund more acquisitions. So the right um, the right acquisitions, if they come along, um, we'll certainly be looking at. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. You know, a couple of years ago, you you could go to a conference like TechCrunch or whatever, and it would be you know social media is the big thing, or you know mobile is now the big thing. Um, but it was it was pretty easy to kind of see where it was, and now you know you go to a, a conference and people are sort of saying, oh, you know, blockchain investments is the thing, or Ethereum's the thing, or um, you know, cybersecurity is the thing, and it's there's so many avenues of research, and even things like you know Boston Dynamics making you know humanoid style Terminator kind of robots that are nearing reality is you know is is kind of crazy, and 
um, I, I read a thing recently that said 18% of all jobs in the US are to do with driving. So, you know, you've got bus drivers, taxi drivers, delivery people, courier people, uh, all kinds of things. So when that's moved to drones plus robots plus self-driving cars, you've got 20% of the US workforce that might be out of work in five years, um, which is why people are talking like you know about a universal basic income and things. But I certainly think it's just it's just amazing the pace of change, and I think that people will be astonished in five and ten years' time what the world looks like. So it's very interesting, and uh, I'm spending a lot of time on it. <laughs> yeah, it, no, it, it is interesting, and um, but there's a lot there's a lot still to figure out. And uh, yeah, you mentioned us- universal basic income. I'm not sure that we've sort of found quite the right thing there yet. I mean, that's obviously one of the, one of the ideas. Um, there's yeah, there's a lot more to explore, and I guess that yeah, that tax story we talked about before was one of the things I've been sort of saying. Look, I'm not sure we've kind of landed on how we need to handle handle tax, uh, you know, properly with uh, mm. w- with this sort of you know new world where uh, um, there'll be a you know a lot more commerce done across those international borders in a way that the current models don't handle from a taxing perspective at all. Um, but yeah, you know, I mean, there's just two examples of things that we've got to figure out. But yeah, I think uh, there's lots of smart people that are really interested in making sure that the world goes in a good direction, and um, you know, by um, um, uh, yeah, keeping thinking about these things and putting our heads together, I'm sure that they will get uh, they'll get solved in time. So. Um, yeah, I think we've got a reasonably positive future ahead. Yeah, it's what interesting because, well, yeah, I mean, deep, Google's Deep Mind Labs. Um, I was reading a thing about them, and they, they, the people that were working in in their artificial intelligence labs, thought that they were ten years away from probably where a computer would be able to beat uh, a human Go player. And so the thing about you know Go is obviously you know computers beat. Gary Kasparov and in you know, chess right. a few years ago, yes. but you know a Go board has a forty-nine by forty-nine square matrices, and the the numbers of possible permutations of Go boards is like almost the number of atoms in the in the universe. And so they kind of thought, well, this is a really difficult product problem. But then you know, eight years ahead of schedule, um, they actually um, was kind of they were they were doing research in secret on on training. Uh, deep mind on how to play go and what happened is they let it loose on the internet and actually one of the world's top ranked go players i think it was number two had a mental breakdown because he was playing on some you know kind of go internet chat room and there was this um unknown you know low ranked person that kept beating him so one of the world's (laughs) top go players basically had this mental breakdown because he couldn't believe that he was being beaten by someone on an internet forum and so then after this guy had a breakdown you know google was like oh actually we were just testing this new algorithm and we didn't realise that, you know, it was kind of at the level where it was beating people. So, um, yeah, I think artificial intelligence is <coughs> just going to um, blow everyone away about how fast it's improving. And um, that same algorithm wasn't actually retrained, but I, I was reading that um, they, they did a thing where they literally just fed, fed a video feed, like an analogue video feed of the algorithm into... The, you know the program, and then got it to play old arcade-style games. So essentially, they just got the computer, gave it a digital eye, and then said, "Start playing these games, and your score is what's in the you know top right hand of the screen." So they didn't say how to play it, they didn't say how to use the paddle, they didn't say anything. And this one computer algorithm could basically learn how to play you know fifty or sixty old arcade games, and then develop strategies that no human had ever developed. So none of these things were programmed; these are things that the computer was actually working out. And then teaching the humans, um, so these kind of neural nets are just going to be 
you know, astounding. I think we're two years away from having a highly intelligent, you know, kind of friend in our pocket that's going to book all our flights and that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I mean, I certainly think we're going to, we're going to see some rapid and massive improvement in uh, in those those AI assistants that have you know been uh, just a bit of you know. A bit of a bit of fun and yeah, you know, slightly helpful to date. Yeah, I think. Yeah, Siri has uh, been a sort of a toy. Completely changed. Completely changed. Yeah. Mm. Well, it's been great to have you uh, on the show again, CB. Thanks, Paul. Before we finish up, we should let people know where they track you down online if they would like to, uh, yeah, follow you on social media, get in touch with you in some way. Great. What do you, what do you recommend? I'm lucky that I have a unique name, so most of my social media accounts are pretty easy, just at CB. So my Instagram is at S-E-E-B-Y, Twitter at CB, S-E-E-B-Y, um, Facebook, just search S-E-E-B-Y. Um, choose your platform of choice. Yeah. Now, you're doing quite a bit of photography these days that I've, right. I've been yeah. seeing on, uh, yeah, particularly on Instagram. Yes, correct. Yeah, I just um, came back from two weeks overseas, so I took about 14,000 photos at uh, the Oregon Eclipse Festival, which was amazing. So um, a festival all around the the giant solar eclipse that the US had, Um, and also Burning Man. So uh, sort of back back again at Burning Man and took a whole bunch of photos. It's a photographer's paradise. It is, it is. Um, It's an incredibly... Uh, incredible visual stimulus there's just so much creativity yeah, there so right? my my photography stuff i keep separate is uh at cb photography so at s-e-e-b-y photography uh and that's on twitter uh instagram and i have a facebook page for that as well so yeah if anyone out there would like to see my work um, yep and if anyone wants to get in touch with you around you know business ideas or someone's got uh wants to suggest an acquisition for you yeah i'm pretty easy to find so just s-e-e-b-y uh woodhouse google me linkedin's probably a good way to um get hold of me or just go to the voyager website i'm not hard to find excellent excellent yeah. Okay, that's good. People can track me down, uh, Paul Spain, and my weekly videos now are on uh, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, regularly every week, and sometimes they'll be on on other channels, and they're on um, they're accessible on uh, YouTube as well. Uh, so those are my much sort of shorter, more consumable bits of uh, uh, business and 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 tech opinions and and commentary, usually sort of three to three to five minutes of interest, probably to a broader audience uh, sometimes than uh, than the than the tech podcast. Uh, and for those who are wanting to have a look at Process Street and just get their hands on, have a little bit of a play around, uh, go to nztechpodcast.com slash Process Street, uh, and then you can jump on um, via via the link there and um, and, and get access to uh, Process Street. In the next few days, uh, probably similar time to this, next week uh, we will have a New Zealand Tech Podcast episode coming up with uh, the founder and CEO of uh, of Process Street. Uh, we dive in there and get a few more insights on uh, on what Process Street is all about and a little bit of a background on them as a software, as a service business that's uh, been developed uh, over the last uh, few years. All right, that's us for this week. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for joining us. And uh, as I say, we'll be back again with another episode next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.